0: power, it's enlightenment, it's encouragement. We we know we have no greater privilege than reading your word. And so as we come to this very, very important passage of scripture, we pray that you'd help us to understand it, that you would remove any hesitancy in us to believe it that you would remove any doubts about its reliability and its truth. And Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would do in us what you promised to do, and that is enlighten our minds and hearts, that we might understand this word, that we might love it, that we might do it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. This is our third sermon on the, on the first chapter of Genesis, so let's turn to the first chapter of Genesis, and we'll start with verse 26 and read through chapter 2, verse 3. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God, Genesis 1, 26. it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. You may be seated. I preached through the uh, book of Genesis in 1992. There's one person here that was there then, Pat Garland. And maybe Mercy was there. A little bit lower. Yeah, right. Uh, but we, we ought to preach on it even more and familiarize ourselves with it. I read of one theologian, famous person, I think it was uh, Francis Schaeffer, who said that when he witnesses to people, he spends more time talking on creation than he does on the redemption. Because if you don't understand creation, you can't understand redemption, Jesus Christ, or anything else. Now, all of you know that there was a momentous reformation that took place in Europe in the 16th century. It was the rediscovery of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. But what most people don't realize is there was a first reformation a thousand years earlier, without which the second reformation would never have taken place. And the first reformation was the recovery of the doctrine of creation and of man. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of that reformation. A thousand years before the Protestant reformation. One of the great leaders of that reformation, of course, was Augustine. Europe was in the uh, uh, tied up in the shackles of classical philosophy. Classical philosophy was the philosophy of Greece and of Rome, and as long as Europe was under its thumb, there was stagnation, there was superstition, and there was not cultural advance. But then when God enlightened men's minds concerning the nature of creation, and the role of man in that creation, Europe broke free from its chains. Classical philosophy began to collapse as Christianity became the dominant force in Western Europe. And it's because of that Reformation that Western civilization was born. If the West was founded on Greek philosophy as all the liberals and humanists say, there never would have been any advance to Western civilization. It would not be the great culture it has been for all these centuries because Greek philosophy couldn't produce it. Greek philosophy did not believe there was an infinite personal God who reveals himself to man and who causes all things to move along according to his eternal plan. Uh, Greek philosophy believes there's no ultimate purpose to creation. It's meaningless. And so life is spent in a flight from the boredom of that meaninglessness. Man in ancient Greece was a part of nature, just like a tree. But when God calls men to realize that man is not only a part of nature but is made in the image of God, things begin begin to change. So with the collapse of classical Greek culture and the rise of Christianity and its understanding of of, uh, creation and of man, Western civilization, or the best of Western civilization, was born. Man finally was seen as an image of God to have dominion over all of creation and with that reformation and rediscovery of creation you have the beginnings of of, uh, inventions, technology, understanding of history. Greeks had no love for history because they didn't believe history was going anywhere. They believed that history was just going in circles And there wasn't any meaning to history at all. Then Augustine wrote his powerful books, Confession of Faith and the City of God, and said that history is being moved along by Christ's powerful word, and there's an ultimate purpose. And man finds satisfaction and contentment and escape from his anxiety as he lives for the purpose of God, uh, is faithful to the plan of God, and sees life as a calling to uh, use all of his energies and all of his strengths to glorify God. Everything changed. If you want a good book, that's all I'm going to say about that. If you want a good book on the impact of the doctrine of creation on the formation of Western civilization, get a little short book by a man named Gilkey. G I L. K-E-Y, called Maker of Heaven and Earth. And uh, well, that's not all I'm going to say. I'm going to say some more. And so, uh, so uh, what, the reason things changed is because finally man understood that the Creator is the Redeemer. He has a great interest in history and in mankind. And I will be so bold as to say that unless you believe that the creator is the redeemer, you're lost. Because what does the Bible say? It says in the beginning God, in the beginning was the word by which God created the universe. And the Word was God, was with God and was God, and all things were made by Him, and nothing that was made was, was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. Who's the Creator? Jesus. Who's the Redeemer? Jesus. And once Europe understood that, life has never been the same. And insofar as the West is committed to the doctrine the creator is the redeemer, civilization will advance and will improve. And insofar as the West turns from those historical truths, it withers up and it dies and it becomes perverted as we see what's going on today. So let's look again at the first chapter of Genesis. There's some other things I wanted to point out in our study of it that I hadn't uh, had enough time to point out yet. So there's four things I want us to look at in our text. I want us to look a little more on the image of God. We've talked about that already. We'll talk about it some more in days to come. Uh, Let's look at the dominion mandate You see, the West did not advance until a man realized there was a dominion mandate. Those two doctrines, the image of God and the dominion mandate, lie right at the base of the best of Western civilization. So, the image of God, dominion mandate, the goodness of creation, and the Sabbath day. So let's say a little bit more about the image of God. We've already talked about the fact that image means resemblance. God created Adam and Eve to resemble him on a creaturely level. Not to resemble him physically because God does not have a body like man. But to resemble his character so that they will live on earth the way God lives in heaven. And their characters will reflect the character of Almighty God, but on a creaturely level. So that when people see you as a Christian, with the image of God restored in you, you will remind them of God. That's what it means to be godly. But the word image also means mirror. And God made man to be a mirror that He would hold up and constantly look into, because God loves to adore the display of His power in the creation of man. So God looks at you, and God loves it. He doesn't like the the fractured nature of that image. He doesn't love the way it's defaced, but that image is there. And you were made to be a mirror for God to hold. And you were made to resemble the character of God on a creaturely level. But what I want to bring out today is that the reason you have a mind is because you're made in the image of God. You're able to think, you're able to plan. You're able to look at the sun and the moon and the stars that he made on the fourth day and uh, create calendars and determine days and months and years. You're able to reason. You realize the Greeks were dead wrong when they said that truth originates with the reason, with reason. We understand that reason is not the source of truth. Truth doesn't originate with man. We understand, however, that reason is a tool, a God-given tool, to help us understand His will for our lives. But you know, there's something else about you that's true, and it, it wouldn't be true if you weren't made in the image of God. You know what it is? You talk. You have a language. You use nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs. No animal does that. You do it because God does it. God talked and the universe came into being. And then he talked to Adam and Adam came into being. See, God's a verbalizer. God knows how to use language and to express what's on his heart. And the reason you don't just don't bark or meow is because you're made in the image of God. There is no animal on the face of the earth that uses an adverb. But you do. Because God does. God spoke in when he gave the Bible in sentences and words that are meaningful both to God and to us. So when when the humanists discuss where language originated, that it eventually evolved from the grunts of gorillas and all those things. God spoke a perfect language. And when Adam started speaking, it was a perfect language it expressed what was on his heart in words and sentences. The reason you have a language is because you're made in the image of God. You're a part of nature. How do we know that? You were made out of dust. You are a part of nature, but you transcend nature as one made in God's image. With the command to subdue the earth. That comes to our second point. Man is defined as the image of God, who has been given a dominion mandate. Let's look at that. Turn to the 28th verse of the first chapter. And God blessed them, that is, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Now, that was what God initially mandated for mankind to do. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth as the perfect image of God. To restore the defaced image of God in you so that you might be restored to man's original purpose. You see, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were given this dominion mandate as individuals. They were given this mandate as the image of God, as the representatives of the whole human race. This mandate is as much addressed to you as it was to them. Uh, And you know mankind cannot escape what he is. Unbelieving mankind tries his best to. Unbelieving mankind tries his best to escape the image of God. He can't do it. He's still made in the image of God. It's defaced, it's broken, it reflects Satan more than it does God on occasion. But man cannot escape what he is. Man cannot, but but, but it's all twisted and distorted. He has a mind, but he doesn't use it to understand truth. He uses it to understand a lie. He has abilities and powers only because he's made the image of God, but he uses them for himself. And he still lives in terms of the dominion mandate. He can't escape it. The problem is, instead of ruling over things for the glory of God, he uses everything for his own glory. And as a result... Unbelieving man cannot create societies and cultures and families and homes and businesses that are pleasing to God and satisfactory to the human race. But a person restored in the image of God can. So let's see what this dominion mandate is. It's very simple. It says, in effect, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have children. Be civilization makers. Generation after generation. You have children, your children have children, their children have children. On down the line, fill the earth. With godly children. Children that you raise in the the nurtured and admonition of the Lord. Uh, build a civilization that is based upon the Word of God and is aimed at glorifying God. Everything you touch, every thought you think, everything you get involved in, you say to yourself, God made me to be a civilization builder. I'm not just somebody that sits around and learns to play guitar and waits for Jesus to come and burn us everything up, and we raptured, we're raptured out of here. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is God made you in His image to build a civilization that would glorify Him. You look at the great men and women of God throughout the ages. That's the way they saw themselves. The Pilgrims and the Puritans that came to this country in the 1600s. Why'd they come? to learn to play guitar and sit on a hill and wait for Jesus to come? No. They came over here to North America to build a civilization that would glorify God. And once we forgot why we were made and what the purpose of our existence is and what the mission is that God has set us on, once we forgot that, we lost our culture. I had a good friend that wrote a great book one time. It's worth to get, worth getting. Called The Stealing of America. His name was John Whitehead. But one time I had to tell him, Brother John, the title's dead wrong. They didn't steal it. We gave it to them. We surrendered. We stepped out of the picture. We started believing that the only thing's important is dying and go to heaven while the world goes to hell. And then the enemy of God steps into the vacuum and changes everything. So now where did Adam and Eve live? They lived in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a rich place. It had minerals, gold, rivers, all kinds of vegetation. It was a gorgeous place. And what God is saying, Adam and Eve, I've placed you in my garden so that you can use all the resources of my garden to build a civilization. I didn't put all these things in my garden just so you'd like them. I put those things in my garden so that you would have energies and powers and resources that you'd need to build a civilization. So you would build God-honoring homes. You would live God-honoring lives. You'd build God-honoring businesses. You'd build God-honoring schools. You'd you'd build God-honoring institutions. You'd build a God-honoring civilization with all these resources that I'm giving to you down through your generations. So Adam and Eve, here's what I want you to do. I want you have babies. I want you to have a lot of babies. I want you to teach them. And then I want you to use the resources that I've given you to train these babies of yours as they grow up to build civilizations till the end of time that are Christ-honoring. I want you to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over it. That doesn't mean be a petty dictator. That doesn't mean being a domineering person. It means everything you touch, I want you to use for my glory. And I want you to have dominion over everything upon the face of this earth. So that it's under your control. I want you to do it as a prophet. I want you to, as a prophet, interpret everything in life by my word. You've named the animals. Now that doesn't mean you just flip a coin and say, I'm going to name you tiger. Flip another coin, I'm going to name you elephant. No, that's what naming, that's not what naming meant in the Bible. To name something is to give it something that reflects its character and reflects its nature. So Adam and Eve had to really study these things. They had to give names to these animals that were suitable for what they were and how they lived. So use the Word of God to interpret everything in life. And as a priest dedicate everything in your life to the living God. Whatever you do. If you have a garden, dedicate it to me. If you build a home, dedicate it to me. If you have a business, dedicate it to me. That's what priests do. Prophets interpret everything by the word of God and priests dedicate everything about their lives to the living God. And I also want you to Uh, exercise dominion as a king and as a queen. I want you to rule over things. I want you to make, God says, I put everything in order now. The word was originally formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And in six days, I put everything in order. I gave life something that it couldn't give itself. Besides light and life, I gave it order. Now, you maintain that order. Make sure chaos doesn't creep in. You maintain my rule. You live in terms of my authority on, uh, over life, and you practice self-control. That's the first place you act as a king and a queen, is practice self-control over your, over your own life. And then be in control of everything, your family, all the resources so that Satan doesn't use them. But you use them to the glory of God. That's what I want you to do, mankind. I want you to be a civilization builder as a prophet and as a priest and as a king. So when you were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit... Christ, the perfect image of God, restored the image of God in you so that you would be restored to your original purpose as a human being. To build a civilization as a prophet and a priest and a king. God's people did that. They discovered the doctrine of creation, the nature of creation, the role of man in creation. And then they built a civilization for a thousand years that they called Christendom. They wanted every part of Western Europe to be under the dominion of Christ. They didn't do it well. They didn't do it well. But they self-consciously <laughs> sought to make Europe a Christian Europe. And that Christendom was strengthened with the Reformation and then with the Renaissance, with the uh, Enlightenment, it disappeared. We don't live in Christendom anymore. So what do we do? Give up and go hide and isolate ourselves? We build a second Christendom. We go out there and build another one. And then if it lasts a thousand years and something happens and it breaks... We build another one. We keep building civilizations until we get it right. Now that's the nature of the Christian life. That is faithfulness to the dominion mandate. It's not enough just to read the Bible. Unless you use what you learn from what you read... As a prophet and a priest and a king, to use all the resources made available to you to build a second Christendom. Christians believed that until the 19th century. And then in the 19th century, there was this new doctrine that there's going to be a rapture. And suddenly, the world's getting worse and worse. And suddenly and unexpectedly Jesus is going to snatch all of us out of here. There's no use trying to change things. God does not intend for things to be changed. There's no use in trying to build another Christendom because your ultimate future is to be snatched out of this world. And then Jesus burns everything up. And it was because of that doctrine that Christendom collapsed in the 19th century. Christians left their posts. Christians surrendered. And we've been losing ever since. You say, but Joe, there's just so many of them. They're so well-funded. They're so organized, these bad guys. I, I don't care. The Bible says uh, in Acts 1.8 that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses who belong to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth. You have a power greater than any power our enemies can ever conjure up. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And you imagine what the apostles said. Now remember here you had 12 apostles. One of them betrayed Christ. One of them denied Christ three times. And Jesus said, I want you all to go out there and conquer the world. Several million people. I want you to conquer. I want you to build Christendom in this world and to replace the Roman Empire. Eleven fishermen, tent makers against the world. Where's Rome? It's fascinating to go to Rome and see the ruins. Rome is just a bunch of ruins in Italy. The Church of the Lord Jesus Christ still advancing in history. You remember Athanasius? Athanasius lived about the fifth century sixth century. Athanasius was hated by large segments of the church because Athanasius believed that Jesus was God, and the most popular bishops in the church, like Arius. Didn't believe he was. So the uh, Athanasian would get exiled several times. The church was against him most of the time. And then you got the Roman Empire he has to deal with. And so somebody came up to Athanasius. Said, Athanasius, don't you know that the world's against you? Athanasius said... Then I against the world? Guess who won? You know how Arius died? He was riding in this town to preach his heresy. Crowds came up and lined up on both sides of the street to welcome him. They put palm branches on the ground. There was a little church of Christians that had a prayer meeting and said, Oh, Lord, may Arius not influence any of your people in this town. Arius is coming triumphantly into town. Being an old man, he had to get off his horse and relieve himself. He goes to relieve himself and doesn't come back to the parade. (laughs) And so they go looking for him. And he had drowned in the latrine. And he didn't influence anybody in that town. I don't care how many there are. We are the sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've been made in God's image, and we've been given a mandate to conquer the world with the gospel. All right, now you got two mandates. You got the dominion mandate that says, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion over it," and then you got the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that says, "Go, disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. What's the relationship of those two? The Great Commission is the restatement of the dominion mandate taking into consideration man's sin and need of a Savior. Now when God first gave Adam the dominion mandate, Adam was perfect. Adam was sinless. And the fall took place. So now the dominion mandate was restated to take into consideration man's sin and need of a Savior. But they're both saying the same thing. Bring the authority of the word of God upon the nations. Disciple the nations. Make the nations disciples. Notice it doesn't say make solitary individuals here and there. Isolated individuals here and their disciples. It says, Bring the authority of the Word of God upon the nations themselves. Disciple all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, make the world Christendom. How do you do that? By baptizing in the name of the triune God and by teaching and teaching and teaching them to observe and to obey everything God has ever told us to do in any page of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Are you doing it? Are you doing it in your own life? Are you doing it in the life of your children and your friends? How are we going to win in this culture? By electing the right people? <laughs> no. No. By carrying out the dominion mandate, which is the Great Commission. And it was made to everybody who's had the image of God restored in him. And that is you. And what's the gospel that you're to declare to this evil culture? Praying that it would fall and unravel under its own weight? What's the gospel that you and I are to share upon which we'll build a new civilization to the glory of God? I already told you once. The creator is the redeemer. Third point I want to talk about today. Talked about the image of God, the dominion mandate, Now I want to talk about the goodness of creation. You know, there is a word that has been used several times in chapter 1 that we haven't even talked about. Remember what it is? Every one of the six days after God created, whatever he created on that day, he pronounced it good. And then we come to the end of creation after everything is created, and he pronounces the whole thing very good. And this is God talking. This is man expressing his opinion. This is God saying, everything I have created is good. It's beautiful. It carries out the purpose for which I made it. It serves its purpose in the overall scheme of things. Whatever God says is good is good because God says it's good, whatever you say. So now understand what God just said. Everything, every physical thing I have created in the entire earth is good. In fact, it's not just good, it's very good. We had a man that was attending our church, Chalcedon, for a good while, uh, but then he left. He didn't want to join. And he said, Joe, i got a bunch of reasons why I don't want to join your church. Thirteen reasons. This man was in the Reagan administration, undersecretary of the Air Force. And uh, he said, here's some reasons why I don't want to join your church. Your sermons are too long. It takes too long for the women to fix lunch. You don't sing Gaither music. And you believe this stupid doctrine of the resurrection of the body at the end of the world. I'll come back to that in a minute. And then he said, and I also don't like the Old Testament. I have problems with the Old Testament. I said, well, Brother so-and-so, do you have any problems with Jesus? No, I don't. Do you believe Jesus had any problems with the Old Testament? We don't know. (laughs) But why did he hate the doctrine of the resurrection of the body? Because he does not believe that God created everything good. The physical body is evil. All physical things are evil. Material things are evil. Involvement in the pleasures of this life are evil. And you must isolate uh, yourself from them. And so why would God want to resurrect something as vile and as wicked as the body that causes so much problems for us? I had one teenager tell me one time, I wouldn't sin so much if I didn't have a body. I told him, that's not the reason you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, not because you have a body. (laughs) And uh, you know why Jesus is going to resurrect us at the end of time? He loves our bodies. Our bodies are precious to him. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies as living sacrifice to God. Jesus, as I've said a hundred times, did not come to save your soul. Jesus came to save you, body and soul. So when God created everything, He pronounced all the material things good. You say, what about sin? He created sin, didn't he? No. Sin's not a created thing. You can't hold a pile of sin in your hand. Sin is a relationship. Sin is an act. It's a desire. It's not a created thing. Everything God created is good and is to be used for his glory. But over the years, Greek, mythology, Greek uh, philosophy has wormed its way back into Christian thought, even into fundamental evangelical thought. It have, for instance, in the last part of the 19th century, uh, there was this belief that originated with some Presbyterians in Kentucky that uh, called the spirituality of the church. That in the church... There are, the only thing that's it, the church is to do and to preach is spiritual you're not to get, preach against politics you're not to preach against ethical things you're not to preach against slavery you're not to preach against abortion or, or any of those things you're just to confine yourself to spiritual things and once the church did that that was the end of its influence on America, for good. Uh, But it creeps in. For instance, I love the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. But there is a Greek philosophical version and there's a biblical version of Sweet Hour of Prayer. And most hymn books in evangelical churches, have the Greek philosophical version where the last verse or a verse says, This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air. Farewell, farewell, sweetheart prayer. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise. I, I get the vision of a copperhead, of a snake shedding its skin. Oh, to be free from this prison house of the body, to be free from this human flesh, and I can hardly wait to die and go to heaven where I can just cast off this body and this robe of flesh I'll drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. Only problem is, death is not the last word. you still got resurrection. And you're not dropping any flesh at the resurrection. Amen. You're rising in a new flesh. But flesh nevertheless. So, the biblical version of Sweet Hour of Prayer is in my immortal flesh I'll rise and seize the everlasting prize. You see, it's this old Greek philosophy that was under the, in the Middle Ages, under the move monastery movement. You know, the monks and the nuns thought if we can just isolate ourselves, separate ourselves from Everything pertaining to earth, and go off and live in a monastery, take vows of perpetual chastity, take vows of silence, and just separate ourselves entirely, we'll be closer to God. It didn't work. It did not work. And that's crept back into evangelicalism where it says our main, the most important thing and the only important thing is our souls and going to heaven. Involving ourselves in, the, in this world, politics, making a profit, whatever, is a distraction from getting to heaven. I want to show you how much God hates that view. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and see what God thinks of that Greek philosophy it says material things physical life involvement in, in earthly things is vile and a distraction from going to heaven First Timothy 4.4 4. this is some of the strongest language Paul uses verse 1 of chapter 4 but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ooh. I don't want to believe a doctrine of demons do you. But he says there's going to be people that do it. By means of the hypocrisy of, li- of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. What are these doctrines of demons? Men who forbid, forbid marriage. That's a Roman Catholic priest. That's the Pope of Rome. Because singlehood is closer to God than marriage. Doctrine of demons. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. People say Christians ought not to drink wine. That's a doctrine of demons, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, everything, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. So if you believe that my only concern should be my soul and dying and going to heaven and I should not get involved in the things of this life. We're propagating a doctrine of demons. That certainly isn't a part of our doctrine of creation. Now, it's late but about one more important point. The fourth thing. We talked about the image of God, talked about the Dominion mandate, we talked about the goodness of creation. One last thing. and that is the Sabbath. You know, it took six days for God to create the earth. and then on the seventh day, after he had completed everything that he had done, he rested. That was Saturday. And then, throughout the entire Old Testament, from the creation of the world to the resurrection of Jesus, now listen, from the creation of the world to the resurrection of Jesus, everybody in the West that professed to be Christian, everybody in the world, Jews, etc., believed that the Sabbath was Saturday. From the creation to the resurrection, all those who profess to be followers of the living God believe the Sabbath was on Saturday. And Adam started it all. He saw God rest. And being the image of God, he knew he was to imitate God. So he started resting on Saturday. His children on down... But from the resurrection of Jesus to the end of the world, all true followers of Christ are going to be worshiping God on Sunday, the first day of the week, or as the Westminster Confession says in so many words, that the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week from creation to the resurrection of Christ, and it is the first day of the week from the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world. So the Sabbath was saved by changing the day. But let's see. What did God do when he rested? Why did God rest? Was he tired? No. By resting, did he become inactive and didn't do anything anymore? No, he just changed what he was doing. On the sixth day, he, the last thing he ever created from nothing was on the sixth day. So he stopped his creating work and began his work of providence and redemption. So his creating work was the first day of the week. Then he completed all of his creating work, stopped it, and began his providence and his redemption. And the people of the Old Testament celebrated the completion of creation and God's work in redemption and providence. Um, so why did they change the day? People often ask me, who changed the day? Did the church change the Sabbath? From Saturday to Sunday, no, that would be evil for the church to change anything God has established. So why don't we rest on Saturday like they did on Saturday in the Old Testament? Why do we have Sunday as our Sabbath day? And the answer is because the uh, in the early church we see the apostles starting to worship God and gathering the disciples on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh day of the week. And that's important because the apostles were the foundation of the church with with Christ being the chief cornerstone. But that's still not the reason. say, well, it would really be great if there was some place in the Bible where it just flat out said we worship God now on Sunday because it's, The the, the day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Well, there is such a verse. And people who don't read the Bible much don't know it. But turn to chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4. It's about the rest, R-E-S-T, that we have in Christ, spiritual rest. And there is a word for rest. That occurs eight or nine or ten times in chapter four. And it's always the same Greek word, except once. So let's look. This chapter is celebrating the spiritual rest we have in Christ. Verse nine. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Look at every word in there. Therefore. Therefore, because we have a spiritual rest in Christ, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, you know what the word Sabbath rest is in in Greek? Sabbatismos. It's not the same word used throughout the chapter. And that word means there is a day that we keep holy as the Sabbath. When it's used in the Greek Old Testament... That word means to keep the Sabbath holy. So, just like the people of God had a Sabbath in the Old Testament, now the people of God, to celebrate the rest we have in Christ, continue to have a Sabbath rest, a day that we observe as holy, set apart from the rest. Now, what day is that? I'm not going to spend a lot of time exegeting it because time's flying. But I want to read to you verse 10. That's the verse that says you're to celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. Now let me paraphrase it. For, four, meaning here's why there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God who are resting in Christ. 10. For the one, capital O, who has entered his rest has himself capital H also rested from his capital H works as God did from his. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that the Sabbath rest of the people of God is on the day that Jesus rested from his redemptive labors just like in the Old Testament, the people of God rested on the Saturday because that was the day God rested from His creative labors. God created His, uh, ended His creative labors on Saturday. The Lord Jesus Christ entered His redemptive labors, ended it on Sunday. And so now we celebrate Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Sabbath. So I say all that To say that the church of God has had a Sabbath day from the beginning of time. It's just that the day changed. So when you're celebrating Sunday. As the celebrating of Christ. The the finishing of Christ's redemptive work. When he was raised from the dead. You're doing what God's people have done for 4,000 years. So there we have the setting of the stage. The first chapter of Genesis is the steady setting of the stage for the playing out of the drama of redemption that the rest of the Bible's about. And that you can see now I trust that if you don't understand creation you'll never understand redemption. Let us pray we thank you great God that Jesus Christ is, remains the Lord of the Sabbath we pray that we would be faithful Sabbath keepers as we celebrate his resurrection and as we celebrate the completion of creation by your mighty hand Lord, make us civilization builders. Help us to live out the image of God in which you made us. So that when people see us, we remind them of Christ and we remind them of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and... Confess our faith in the living God as we recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. So the great blessing about the Lord's Supper is the Lord of the Sabbath is here on His special day. That's why we celebrate the completion of redemption by the Creator incarnate on the Christian Sabbath. So these things will always be on our mind and before the eyes of our faith. And Jesus physically, the Lord of the Sabbath, sits at the right hand of God. By his Holy Spirit, he is present here with us. And he does things supernaturally in our heart by the power of the Spirit that nobody but true Christians can ever experience. So as we take this meal together, thank the Lord of the Sabbath For finishing our salvation. Thank you creator redeemer. For creating us in your image. Now we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower and strengthen us. To be more faithful in carrying out the dominion mandate. Let us pray. Lord all these things swirl around us and we rejoice that we can think about them